from the indestructible studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA, it's time for another late flowering episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks You Bet Your Garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Hostas thrive in the shade so well that some people consider them weeds. On today's show, we'll try and decide the ultimate question, hostas, threat or menace? Plus, we'll discuss how to turn your plants into pets with a young lady who keeps more plants in an apartment than most of us have outdoors. And of course, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and seriously sanguine salutations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, true believers, because it's all coming up faster than a yard full of hostas because you put up a feeding and pooping station for your songbirds right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. In life, we have many kinds of partners, school bus partners, business partners, even gardening partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from Rodale Institute Radio at the studios of WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we will answer the burning horticultural question. Hostas, threat, or menace? We'll also talk to a young lady who has more plants in her apartment than I do in my raised beds. So we better get hopping if we want to get in a bunch of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Drusilla, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here, Drusilla. Where are you? I'm in Agramont, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Where in Massachusetts now? It's um, it's actually near Great Barrington, okay. which is close to Lenox or Stockbridge. Okay, very good. Beautiful area up there. I have just discovered um, the name of a weed that has been in my garden for some time. It's called horsetail. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a famous one. <laughs> and uh, I realized I probably have been propagating it by trying to weed it and um, take it out of my garden. So I was wondering if you had... Um, any suggestions to control it or get well, first, first, I want to tell you an interesting story about it. The reason this weed is so prevalent in many parts of the country is it was an essential household tool. As you know from pulling it, it has a really unique structure. It doesn't feel like a plant. It feels more like a scrub brush when you pull it up out of the ground, right? Right. And that's what it was used for. Horsetail is full of silica, uh, a kind of a glass-like substance that's in a number of plants. When you see these lists of, um, quote, poisonous plants and don't let your cats eat this and right, that, right, right. a lot of times there is no actual toxin involved, um, but there's enough silica in the plant that the pet gets a tummy ache. Okay. It, it would never kill them or anything like that. And cats being cats would never touch the plant again. Now, dogs being dogs, all bets are off, but um, it, won't, it won't kill them. And it used to be used for scrubbing floors, uh, for oh, scrubbing out pots and pans. I mean, oh. think about it. You're growing your own Brillo for free. Yeah, really? So that's, that's it. No problem, right? Bye. <laughs> 
All right. So where is it growing in? Well, I have a vegetable garden that's about 900 square feet. And okay. It's contained. You know, I have a fence around it. Okay. And um, it's all over the place. Now, are you, are you a flat earther or are you growing in raised beds? No, flat. I would urge you, especially because of your location, to start building raised beds. Just one or two a season. Make them four by four or four by eight. But I want you to use stone for the bed frames. You can use local field stone if you got a lot of it. You can go to um, these places that supply decorative stone. They may even, you know, these granite countertops and stuff, they may have off runs. You can have them cut them to size, make boards out of them for you. Um, and then fill them, you know, what you'll do is you'll pull out all the horsetail in these things that you have you'll lay down one or two things of cardboard and then you'll fill the beds as everybody should with a mixture of high quality topsoil and compost, none of your native soil. Um, the advantage to you because of your location, those stones, that material, that non-wood material, metal would also work. It's going to absorb sunlight during the day and get hot and then it's going to stay warm overnight long enough to continue to heat up the roots of your plants. Um, you will equivalent, get the equivalent of about a month extra growing season, at least at the root zone. Your plants will not get as cold at night. That means you can grow longer season tomatoes and peppers and things like that. One of the other advantages is you've got this weed infested area. It's almost impossible to get rid of weeds in a flat earth garden. It's an ancient design that was really never any good. People just didn't, um, the French intensive system hadn't been you know, thought of yet. With the rest of it, what do you normally do when these things pop up? Because they're solitary plants. Do you cut them at the soil line or do you try to pull them out roots and all? I, I used to try and pull them out and just follow the root and see where it led and pull it up and pull it up and pull it up and it just kept coming back. So yes. then I started just cutting it at soil level okay. or pulling it. Yes, you know? that's the smart money. Um, these things are interconnected. Uh, you, there can be a great mass of them all connected by a web growing underneath your garden. Um, but, well, you, you take one season where you declare war. Maybe um, the way some people will hire a neighborhood kid to cut their lawn every week, you could hire a neighborhood kid to come and pull every week, especially right after a heavy rain. And I actually don't mean pull. I think you're going to do better cutting. Pulling can often stimulate a hormone that uh, pushes the plant to produce more above ground growth. So you would just cut it off. Um, you can. This would actually be a great situation for a modified scythe where you would just stand up and have the blade sideways down low. Oh man, I want a scythe now. I'm just thinking about that. And then it's not going to come up in the beds that you've built. And in the other ones, you just keep lopping it off at ground level until you've got the area developed. You've got some really nice raised beds in there and you got the weeds under control. And then you would ask the local power company or tree trimming company to drop off uh, their chips. These are arborist wood chips. Don't buy the dyed stuff. That's junk. Oh, right. But arborist wood chips would be great to use in the lanes between the raised beds. So now you got the raised beds with the cardboard that has, you know, it's not going to keep them 
out forever, but if they're going to have to fight their way through two layers of cardboard and then this eight inches to a foot of new soil, they're going to be pretty puny when they come out. And at that point, you could spray them with either uh, full strength white vinegar on a hot and sunny day, or you could get a flame weeder, just a, a shepherd's hook that you uh, screw a camp stove size bottle of propane on. It's got an automatic clicker. You just stand there and you flame weed the thing until it withers or if you really hate it, which it sounds like you do, until it burns to a crisp. Um, there are also iron-based herbicides that you could spray. The important thing is to take as much of the strength out of this root system and then force any new growth to come up through something, and then it's weakened and it's going to fall prey to almost anything you do. So let me just repeat that. So the, um, the white vinegar or the flame with, um, well, I do on the raised beds, but... Well, you, there may not be any coming up in your raised beds. The, this whole concept is to prevent weeds. But in the lanes, you need two foot of walking space between each raised bed frame. Um, okay. In there, you want to um, lay down a couple of inches, two, three inches of wood chips. Um, the, uh, the horsetail may sprout up from somewhere else. Um, it may come up on the outskirts where it's probably going to be the biggest problem. But now you know what it looks like, so when it's very small, Either spray it with full-strength vinegar, and if you're going to use the vinegar spray, make sure you have eye protection, make sure you have goggles on, just in case oh. the wind changes, or you burn it to a crisp, or you use one of these new iron-based herbicides. But um, one season of, of building raised beds and cutting at the soil line and then mulching the areas in between, and it may be an occasional visitor in the outskirts. Now, how... What about um, ground covers or the, a the cover crop, I meant, not ground cover, I'm thinking. Cover. No, they would just grow up inside the cover crop. They would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, what you're doing, you're probably tilling your, your flat earth garden. Yeah. See, every time you till your flat earth garden, you plant millions of these uh, horsetail seeds. Uh. Um, and then you cover them up with soil, don't you? And then you water and feed that area. So right. you're actually a horsetail gardener <laughs> with raised beds that are no wider than four feet that you never step in, you can sell the tiller. And when you get rid of the tiller, your weed woes will be over. Oh, Mike, I hope this, this, this sounds wonderful. It sounds like a miracle. Well, it's, it's not a miracle. It's one season of hard work for, uh, and I urge you to, to buy some help and to stay on it, but no, it's, um, this is a problem with any flat earth garden. You're eventually going to lose to weeds or you're going to be spending so much time weeding that you're not going to enjoy gardening anymore. And raised beds are the answer. And they well, look nice. How high would you make the, the raised bed? If you, if you go to our website, go to youbetyourgarden.org, click on the link that says like 500 answers to your garden questions, there will be a dozen articles on how to build raised beds. All right? Well, thank you, Mike. This um, <laughs> gives me a direction now to go in, and um, I, I have hope. Okay, <laughs> good.
uh, your hope will will turn out to be true if you stop tilling. Okay. Well, yeah. It's um, I will I will stop that. I'll put the cardboard down and five eight inches of topsoil on top of it. Eight to eight inches to a foot. Yeah. Okay. Well. You, you've been very helpful in the past through your books and through your program, and now you've just top, topped them all off. All right. Well, thank you. 833-727-9588. Trish, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks. Well, thank you, Trish. How are you? I'm doing great. And where is Trish doing great? I'm in Attleboro, Massachusetts. I know Attleboro. It's a beautiful little area there. What can we do for Trish in Attleboro? Well, about my my husband and I moved in, and there was this absolutely gorgeous rose of Sharon. It's about a story tall. Uh-huh. Hummingbirds love it. Uh-huh. We both love it. We just sit out on the deck and watch the little hummers. Um, two winters ago, about half of it got killed off by a nor'easter. No. Um, unfortunately, it was all the half that was growing away from the house. <laughs> what do you What do you expect, Trish? I mean, that's right? the law I mean, of gardening. It's more so I guess it makes sense. Um, but the problem now is I need it to grow away from the house. So gotcha. all the dead stuff I've taken care of. Okay. But so how do I encourage it to grow away? All of the advice I've given about trees that lean and planting new trees and everything goes out the window here because I had the same situation um, when one of our fierce storms uh, blew through. It pushed, the plant just leaned over towards the mailbox and the sidewalk and became a nuisance. So I did cowboy gardening. I went out with a clothesline <laughs> and tied it as close to the top as I could while still holding on to a good, um, good thick part of the structure and then yanked it back and uh, tied it around a peach tree that was dying um, a few feet away and wrapped it tight and just held it like that for a year, something that I would never recommend um, for any other tree. But these things are incredibly hardy. The Rose of Sharon is a hardy hibiscus. You know, sooner or later, people, whether it's nature or humans, they have to cut them back because they just grow ginormously. Now, if you were going to rope and ride this Greyhound bus, can you pull it in the direction you want without winding up in the middle of the street? Yeah, it's in the back. Oh, okay, so good. Is there anything you can attach it to? Um, not necessarily on our property, but there's a tree that's right on that property line. Um, How far away? Behind us. It is, let me look out the window. Six um, feet, 50 feet? Yeah. Probably no, wait a like minute. That. Those were questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's actually probably about 50 feet. Okay, then uh, then if you're going to pursue this wonderful bit of advice, uh, get a sturdy stake or a piece of rebar that's curved to the top, you know, a shepherd hook design, and really pound it deep into the soil, into the, the most clayey soil you have back there. And um, do this when you've had, when the plant is well hydrated. You know, in one sense, you want the plant to be well watered, but you want that ground to be nice and uh, nice and firm. So good luck with that. But, well, uh, it's been pretty wet around here lately. Yeah, it's been so pretty wet just about everywhere here. but the moon, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're we're drowning again. So yeah, you can try this. Um, as you go up the trunk, you'll probably see that it it's really thick up to a point, and then it starts to thin out and branch out. 
So you want to try to find that sweet spot right where the trunk is still full-sized, but where the, the canopy begins above it, and pull back there. See how much you have to do. You can, you know, it will tolerate this, believe me. There aren't a lot of plants that would, but the Rosa Sharon will. You know, it may not look the prettiest, but, you know, you will be able to encourage it to go in the other direction. In the meantime, you also know it's going to grow like Hades from the rest of the plant. So yep. after maybe two years, you'd probably be comfortable cutting off any, any of the part that's still leaning towards the house and let the new growth uh, take over because unless the sun is in a really bad position back there, the new growth should grow straight up. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's the sunniest side of our house. So that's why all our flowering plants are back there. Yeah. And if, if it would help to reduce the plant in size, do that in the spring, um, just as your other plants are beginning to leaf out. Okay. Don't, don't prune it in the fall. Okay. That's all right. Good to know. All right. Great. Thank you. Good luck, Trish. All right. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear in Philadelphia this Tuesday, July 16th to host an evening of horticultural quizzo at the PHS pop-up garden on South Street. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back to put a thousand plants in a tiny apartment, handle hostas, and take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the Rodale Institute Radio Studios at WLVT, Channel 39 in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up a little later in the show, we will help you tame your hostas. We're also gonna take lots more of your fabulous phone calls, but now it is time to welcome our special guest who's gonna remind us that plants can be your pets too. Summer Rain Oaks, who is the author of a new book, How to Make a Plant Love You, Cultivate Green Space in Your Home and Heart. Summer Rain Oaks, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, thank you for uh, being here. Now, I have to tell people that your first name, Summer, is spelled like the season. Rain is R-A-Y-N-E. Now, is there... Yes. Is there any chance that that is your actual family name and they were really clever when you were born? <laughs> Luckily, I got to pick my middle name, which is Hyacinth, which is one of my favorite flowers that my mom used to grow in her gardens. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's an old uh, rock and roll song, isn't it? Summer rain. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. And, and so you got Hyacinth in there, too. Well, couldn't they fit that on the book title? You know. <laughs> 
I think um, I think the book the the book uh, cover had a little space. It was a very busy book cover, considering that they they chose a photo of me in front of all my plants, and there's a lot of plants in my house. Now you grew up in um, northern Pennsylvania, right? Yes, northeastern Pennsylvania, a little bit north of um, Scranton, actually, close to the close to the New York border near Binghamton. Right, right, okay. But your indoor botanical garden, your your fairy garden in real life, is that still in Brooklyn? Yes, I began you know, kind of cultivating plants in my home. And obviously that really shifted the space. So I've had plants for a while, but for whatever reason, you know, three years ago, it, it really hit a chord with folks. And I'm not quite sure why that is. I mean, I have, you know, my assumptions, but um, I had been growing plants indoors for quite some time. But like I said, it wasn't until a few days, a few years ago when, when people really uh, it hit a chord. It hit a chord with folks. Right around the time of the tiny house trend. I think the idea of alternative living, uh, you know, really resonates with people for on so many different levels. How big is your apartment? How many rooms? I have one big room that probably, you know, that really holds my kitchen, my dining, and my living room. So that really is just one room. And then I have a workroom, a bedroom, and a bathroom. So it's really like four or five rooms. Mm -hmm. It's just that a few are connected together. It's about 1,200 square feet. And I started cultivating plants I would say about 10 years ago now, you know, it's just accumulated over the course of those 10 years to, I think I have around a little over 1,100 plants now and around 560 different types of species of plants. Well, if you could see me on, on television right now, we're both at TV and a radio show, you'd see that I personally subscribe to the ethic that the guy with the most toys uh, when he dies wins. So. <laughs> So you're a hoarder, I would guess. Well, I was a hoarder. Uh, the place is being cleaned out. And boy, am I happy because some of my best toys had been hidden under boxes for 30 years. So, yeah. I think the same thing goes for houseplants. You know, you know, some folks look at my space and just say, I, I wouldn't be able to handle it. And I think the key is to really find what resonates with you and to find that really happy balance because for some people it might just be one plant but for others it might be 100. And this has been happening you know for decades in one sense back when I was the editor of Organic Gardening magazine in the 90s the only trend we were certain of is that people were gardening in smaller spaces every year but wanted to get more out of those spaces every year which is why I'm, I'm constantly pounding people People to build raised beds and to use the French intensive method of gardening outside. But I, like you, have also noticed, I'm going to say over the past five years, a lot of this so-called millennial generation desperate to grow plants indoors. You know, they may even have a spot at a community garden or they may be close enough to parents or a friend that they put in a summer garden every year, but they want to fill their house with plants. They want those plants to look good. To them, I mean, it's like, like bookcases. It's, it's like books, the more the merrier. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, some of the, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that so many of us are actually moving to cities 
and we might not have that green space outdoors. I just, you know, was on a wait list for a community garden, and three years ago I was able to get a community garden plot. Don't just tend to my plot, but have been able to plant and landscape, you know, a rain garden and a shade garden in the back area, which is really fulfilling. But I think, you know, what house plants also give us is the opportunity to expand our knowledge of plants and to grow things that are, you know, quite frankly, exotic. It's not as if we could bring you know, one of our native oaks or birches indoors and have success with it. And in many cases, those plants need a cold period and we can actually then take on subtropical and tropical varieties that typically wouldn't be found in our native outdoor environments and be able to grow those indoors. For me, you know, I, my background is in environmental science and entomology, and I grew up kind of working in an outdoor space, but, you know, now being in New York City and can kind of contained a little bit more um, to the fact that I don't have like grass that I could run on um, that's that I could call my own or an outdoor area where I could cultivate and um, and feel that kind of connection to nature that ability to be able to grow some interesting plant varieties indoors and learn about them and then feel connected to actually where those plants come from really fuels my curiosity. So you take the sunniest spot, the place where the sun comes through the windows and hits the longest part of the day, and then you bring in these large tubs back to back, you fill them with potting soil, you sow shade-loving grass seed, and then you can walk on your own lawn indoors. (laughs) What are you wasting your room with these chairs and stuff? Uh, believe me, I have um, I have definitely you know flirted with the idea of like why do I need carpets when we could this could <laughs> yeah. be grass. That's right. But um, yeah, no, I mean it could go it could go pretty far. You have to sometimes check yourself. It's always it's always good to have a good night's sleep. Or you could follow the stones and go too much is never enough. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's um, that's been a, a challenge. You know, now um, on my YouTube channel, I do one plant a day every day and it gives really an opportunity to really highlight you know where that plant is from its natural history um, how i've been growing it how long i've been growing it indoors and just basic care tips and a a flood of people wrote in and said oh no this is going to make my plant list grow longer and Uh so i think that there is that that idea of like one is never enough but um, i do think that if we could just like pull ourselves back and appreciate um, what they give us and also to understand the rituals. And I think that's like, you know, part of what how to make a plant love you is all about. It's, it's really finding the process of enjoying plants and finding those rituals, not just the plants that we have indoors, but also outdoors as well. And to really connect us to our community, because I think that like for us, it's you make the community that you want to live in by contributing to it. And it's not just about for me, the plants that are behind my four walls. It's about plants and intact ecosystems, which I know you speak so lovingly about on your radio show, um, and which I, by the way, I listen to when I'm repotting my plants, which is, um, you know, a, a long task. Yes, sometimes. exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Now, I know that um, a lot of our listeners who are in apartments and things like that, I know the question they're dying for me to ask you. Um, and that is, do you have, are you growing anything edible in uh, inside those four walls? Yeah, actually. So the about four years ago, I started experimenting with more edible plants. 
word to the wise, never grow potatoes indoors <laughs> because Whoa. they attracted absolutely every nasty pest under the sun. So I'm talking about white flies. I've never had white flies before until I had potatoes. Yeah, and um, you had them in the house. I had them in the house. <laughs> I had white flies. I had thrip. I had spider mites. I had uh, the whole, I had to get rid of the potatoes. But And then, yeah, your, la- started- and then your landlord came back and pointed out <laughs> the thing in your lease that says, no pets. <laughs> Well, I I, um, I would have failed that a long while ago because I ended up getting a chicken two years ago. So. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Partially indoors. What do you hang her out the window the rest of the time? <laughs> uh, tell us your successes with edibles. Well, I think that the easiest ones for folks to grow indoors are for sure microgreens and herbs, which, you know, the microgreens were a huge success. Aside for the fact that, again, fungus gnats really loved the medium that I was growing in. And I, you know, from my experience of actually doing this now for 10 years, the number one question that I get for people growing plants indoors as far as pests go is fungus gnats. And I actually didn't realize that fungus gnats was such a problem for people. And, you know, it's not necessarily really a pestiferous insect on your plants. You know, it's more of a nuisance to you because they're always flying in your eyes or your nose holes. But I was growing it on a very nice, rich, organic medium. And that was, of course, a perfect place for fungus gnats to be able to lay their eggs and for their eggs to hatch into these uh, this larvae. And so um, I had to go through this like big challenge. So when I got my community garden, I started growing a lot of my food crops outdoors. Right. With the exception of um, curry and basil and a few other herbs that I grow um, uh, in the kitchen because that's something that I like to cook. And, and having herbs really at my disposal really quickly is um, is very, very good to have. So I was successful now... in growing like purple sweet potatoes and everything like that, but right. they don't grow very large but you can eat their greens and their greens are very prolific oh same with beets beet greens i like better than lettuce on a sandwich oh oh yeah absolutely and and beet greens as microgreens are like oh they're amazing little flavor bombs even kale kale the vile plant of all time tastes good when it's a little baby Oh, I, I prefer I prefer kale small as well, um, and and arugula. I mean, there's so much that you can grow small, and um, and you know I I'm glad to see the microgreen trend hasn't really right. And microgreens out. are just the the older brother of sprouts. You know, people yeah. have been sprouting, just putting the seeds in these water chambers, rinsing them, rinsing them, rinsing them until they germinate, and then eating the sprouted seeds, which are tremendously beneficial, but those of us who start lots of things tightly outside, like salad greens, like kale, um, there's old advice going back decades, eat your thinnings. You know, don't just pull out the extra carrots or the extra kale or the extra lettuce. Go out there when it's like, you know, super tiny and just graze on it. This is the stuff that costs the million dollars a pound in the supermarket or at the farmer's market and it it's so easy to grow and they are little flavor bombs and the nutrients the phytonutrients in them are much more concentrated it is it is so fun to eat your thinnings and so many uh people don't understand um that so many of the plants we grow things like carrots all the salad greens like lettuce spinach kale, anything like that, broccoli, um, so many of the things we grow, if you can see it, you can eat it. None of it's going to hurt you. 
you know, when you're doing microgreens, you know, eat the thinnings of your tomato plants. They have an amazing flavor. Your pepper plants. I mean, and really anything that you over sow, instead of clipping it off at the soil line, pull it out gently, rinse it off and eat it. Yeah, absolutely. And for, and for people who want to start, I mean, microgreens, it only takes about seven to 10 days for them to be perfect for cutting. And you could just keep on sowing new seeds over and over again, provided that you have enough, you know, light for it and the right kind of conditions, which you can easily do indoors now because there's so many great lighting, LED lighting options. All for right. Plants. You, 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 you brought me around to where I wanted to be. So uh, <laughs> how many lights do you have? What have you found works best? Did you pick an apartment that was um, exceptionally sunny to begin with, had a lot of windows? Uh, I really, I really lucked out in the sense that I have, um, you know, four large southwest facing windows, which, no, if, good. you know, if anybody's familiar with uh, the directions of lights it, and they're not being obstructed by any kind of buildings, luckily yet, um, but <laughs> yeah. it's really intense light southwest facing windows. So I tend to grow more of my succulents and my cacti in that area because if my um, thinner leaf variety plants are in there with some exceptions they will burn they might get burned yeah yeah in my uh, other side i have about um five windows that are northeast facing and then in the middle of the house that's where i have most of my grow lights and i have uh, a bunch of t5 bulbs i have a really great grow light called soltec solutions which is a nice little pendant light i have three of those um and i have a uh, green wall that grows about 80 plants in there and then i have large um led strip lights that are um that you know amend some of the light coming in even though it's perpendicular to my southwest facing window and it gets some really nice afternoon light a little bit deeper into the the room but all of the middle sections of my um, living room area, which doesn't get a tremendous amount of light from the windows, is augmented with grow lights. And you mentioned T5. That is the classic fluorescent shop light. Um, yes. But in its second big improvement, the um, for many years we had the, I'll, I'll just call them the fat tubes. Then we went to the skinny tubes that are T8s. And now T5s are even more energy efficient and brighter and thinner, right? Yeah, they are. And the way that I, I actually still don't like looking at the light because you, you could choose a light that they usually come in like a temperature of Kelvin. So you mm-hmm. can decide whether you want something that's like a little bit bluer or a little bit more yellow. And indoors, it tends to work a little bit better if it's a little bit more yellow for you, just because it's not like, like you said, shop lights. It doesn't look like a shop light. But the way, kind of the clever way that I have um, these fluorescent tubes is they're underneath the shelf that sure. has um, uh, an edging. So I can't see the light, but the plants can. And that's and that's better for me. So there's different ways to kind of do it to make it more acceptable for you and your plants. All right. We've been speaking with Summer Rain Oaks. That's R-A-Y-N-E-O-A-K-E-S. Author of the book that comes out very early in July, called How to Make a Plant Love You, um, published by Optimism Press. Uh, We'll have a picture of it up on our website. It comes out July 9th. Summer, thanks very much for being on the show. You're a real delight. You too. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for being had. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at the beautiful Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York to give a talk about pollinators 
on Monday, July 29th. But don't go looking for all the details at the event section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back to handle your hostas and take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a few minutes, we'll get to the question of the week to answer the question, hostas, threat, or menace? We'll reveal what we think is the answer after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Tom, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Good morning. Hi, how are you, Tom? I'm doing great. How are you, Mike? I am just ducky, thanks for asking. Where is Tom doing great? I live in Denver, Colorado. In Denver itself, the mile high. That's right. Okay. So what can we do for Tom in Denver? You're almost at sea level compared to where I was. (laughs) It's true. We're still mile high. Um... So I have a peony plant. Um, I own a condo, and I planted it for like 10 years, and I planted, it's the first plant I put in mm-hmm. um, since then, so it's, I don't know, 10 to 15 years old, um, maximum two to three blooms, but the past couple of years, I haven't gotten anything, and uh, it just seems to me like it's probably too deep, and I'm wondering if there's any kind of solution uh, to save that peony. Well, you say you didn't get anything. What about leaves? Do you get healthy leaves? leaves? Oh, I'm sorry. It just come up with leaves. And there were uh, tiny, you know, like maybe pea-sized blooms right. uh, or buds that started, but nothing happened. Right. Okay, so sun, shade? It is not shady. It was in the beginning, but now it's full sun. Okay. Um and, okay, have you fed it? Is there mulch nearby? I doubt there's a lawn near there. You, you guys are um, always short no, of water. No, there's not lawn. Uh, no, I don't fertilize it per se, mm-hmm. uh, other than just, you know, I use, like, a fish fertilizer application oh, nice. during the growing season. Okay. What happened to deny it its shade? Uh, there were two trees that were in the easement that um, were taken down by the city. Oh, so there's, and that you don't have the right to plant anything there. That's debatable, but probably not. <laughs> okay. I don't think the problem is it being planted too deep. My peony, as best I can figure, is about 50 years old. I've lived in the house I live in for 35 years. The peony was already there um, in the worst possible place. If, if you would ask somebody, where can I kill a peony by planting it? You would Uh plant it right off of my road at the very edge where they plow all the snow and all the salt goes in the wintertime. And the thing blooms really well every year. So Uh I redid the front yard kind of, you know, maybe 15 years ago, something like that. And I got a shovel and I decided uh, what you're thinking of doing. Uh, I was thinking, let's move this thing. I swear to you, I got down... 
I must have gotten down a good four or five feet, and I still couldn't see anything that looked like a root system. So, really? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. But I, I had already learned this from um, spring bulbs. The Dutch, when I was over in Holland, explained to me that the, the planting level that you put in spring bulbs isn't all that important. The bulbs have the ability to move themselves up and down. So if they need to be lower for the frost line, they'll actually use their roots to kind of wiggle down. Or if they need to be planted a little bit higher, they'll let go a little bit and the bulb will move up. So I think this thing has just sent its roots down to either China or Australia, whatever's underneath my house on the other side. Okay. Where people have to wear leaded boots so they don't fly off into space. And sure. it's really down there. Now, having said that, you've already been through the blooming season, so you didn't get nothing, huh? That's right. And the leaves, however, are still looking good. Yep, they're yep. fine. It's actually always been a good landscape performer. Good, good. And now, do you have a spot you can move it uh, that is partial shade? Mine is almost dead shade, man. It I, I probably gets two hours of sun a day. Wait, I'm sorry, you're asking, can I move it to more shade or less shade? More, because you don't have no shade. That's right. Yeah. Um, I believe, I could be wrong, I believe in the wild these are probably understory plants that are used to getting by, even despite the fact that they have such large flowers. Yes, there's definitely places in, in my yard that are have greater shade. And, yeah, and it's, yeah, no, okay. I'm, I was thinking maybe it's too old needs to be divided, but that wouldn't be... The case. Okay, so you got two choices. Right now, when your leaves are really fully green, the plant is absorbing nutrients for next season. And it sounds like you have a healthy plant. The green leaves are absorbing solar energy. It's trying to put on the flowers. So um, I would, uh, I'm not sure what the NPK rating of your fish fertilizer, is it fish and uh, seaweed? I don't know the answer to that. Okay, and you don't remember the brand name or anything? Um, it's just the Alaskan fish fertilizer. I, okay, that's what I was afraid of. Um, I hate to say anything bad about an organic fertilizer, but there are concerns about the levels of chlorine in that oh. specific brand of fish fertilizer. And it, okay. can, it can have very negative effect on plants. It's also, if I remember correctly, all nitrogen, which will give okay. you big, healthy growth, but uh, fewer fruits or flowers. So what I want you to do is switch it out. Um, there okay. are a huge number of great liquid organic fertilizers on the market today. I want you to find one um, that's not the one you're using. A fish and seaweed mix might be good but you want a product with a good middle number. You know, the first number on the label is nitrogen, second is phosphorus, third is potassium. You want like a, a 262, ideally, because the liquid uh, phosphorus will be absorbed by your plant this season, and I would do that instead of moving it. If you, okay. If you do want to move it, if you choose to move it rather, wait till all the leaves have turned brown, but wait no longer than that or you won't be sure where it is. And, right. And, right. right? And, you know, where's, where's my panty? I have to wait another year. So, and then use a garden fork to try to get around the root system without damaging it. But where okay. I, I, if I were you, I would just change fertilizers. And if you're doing any more planting or anything in the area, I would do something to give it some shade. Because don't forget, 
not only is this thing in full sun now, but your full sun is something like 15% more UV rays than my full sun. Right. Because you're higher up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so anything okay. you can do for shade. But I, th- I think the Alaska is holding it back, and a different type of organic fertilizer with a high phosphorus rating would, would do wonders. Okay, great. That sounds wonderful. I'll definitely give it a try. All right. Okay, thanks so much. I enjoy listening to you, and talk to you soon. All right, cats and kittens, as promised, it is time for the question of the week. If the poppy is also a flower, is the hosta also a weed? Lynn in the West Mount Airy section of Philadelphia writes, I'm trying to rid my garden of hosta. Is digging it out the only solution, or is there something I can do to kill it without harming the other plants or my soil? Well, I am very familiar with hostas and their ability to propagate, Lynn. If left to their own devices, they will form a thicket so dense that several books recommend them as a ground cover, which to me is the ultimate hedging of the language. Yeah, they'll completely cover the ground, but I doubt that anybody's going to want to enjoy walking on them. The good news is that, yes, they can be controlled, as I know personally because they are the centerpiece of my front yard, which is heavily shaded and has been hosticized since the late 1980s. But before we control this plant, let us first praise it, as it is the essential element of the holy trinity of the coward's shade garden, hostas, begonias, and impatiens. Although impatiens are dropping off the shade chart rapidly, as a blight continues to spread that wipes out bedding impatiens virtually undernight. Anyway, back to hostas. Let us review the life cycle of this remarkable plant. A herbaceous perennial, the individual plants die back to the ground every winter. Actually, like spring bulbs, they die back underground, and you can't see exactly where they will emerge every spring. But emerge they will, enlarging their clump every season. They grow slow in early spring and then rapidly, and soon afterwards, every plant is sending up a tall central spike that'll be covered in sequential flowers midsummer. The basic form has green leaves and produces purple flowers, while the older variegated varieties have white variegation and produce blooms that are more of a light lavender. In more recent years, hostas have been introduced in a ton of shades, golden leaves, leaves that appear to be blue, white flowers, flowers that are more blue than purple, and hostas easily cross-pollinate. So if you grow lots of different kinds, a sport may appear in your garden in a new shade. Whoop-de-doo. Because of their height and the fact that there isn't all that much else in bloom at that time of year, hosta flowers are often the focal point of the landscape in summer. And native bees, especially bumblebees, love buzzing their noses into those big flowers for pollen and nectar. No, they're not native plants. They're from Europe by way of Asia, but native pollinators love them. Then the trouble starts. Each of those flowers becomes a surprisingly large seed head, which will burst open at some point, and then the birds will come a-running. Finches especially seem to like these seeds and return the favor of food by flying off somewhere, pooping out some undigested seed and the most natural fertilizer imaginable, and boom, next year there's a new baby hosta coming up under your ornamental cherry tree. This creates a philosophical dilemma. 
Native birds love the seeds and the strikingly tall scapes with their prominent pods provide wonderful winter interest in the garden. But leaving them go to seed can spread these easy to grow plants into the wild where the evil things will feed more pollinators and birds, stabilize the soil, give toads a perfect place to live under. Yeah, how, I know, I know, I'm bad. I just can't get hyped up about successful and useful plants being called invasives. We'll wait for the police. Now that I'm in big trouble, let's discuss hosta control. Job number one, of course, is to promptly remove the developing seed heads after the flowers fade. Then you just have the existing plants in the ground, which I have been controlling for years with a weed whacker. In a front yard that would otherwise be wall-to-wall hostas, I whack the emerging plants early and often to create walking lanes and to shape the remaining plants into clumps. I currently have one rectangular bed where spring bulbs and hostas peacefully coexist, and one giant central bed that's a circle about five feet in diameter that looks amazing when all the hostas are in bloom. Everything else named hosta that tries to come up gets whacked back to the ground. I also have a stupid 50-year-old crabapple tree in the middle of my driveway that gets spared the chainsaw every season when it beautifully buds out and then carpets the nearby road in apple blossoms so perfectly somebody should get married out there. Luckily, it's surrounded by a circle of hostas so thick that you don't look up at the tree after the blooms have fallen, which is really good because like all the other crab apples, it looks like the dog's breakfast the other 50 weeks of the year. All right, so now beyond weed whacking, if you are so inclined, you can certainly dig up each individual plant early in the spring when the leaves first break ground. But you could also just keep whacking them. Even though they're shade lovers, they do need to photosynthesize. And if you prevent that for a full season, the emerging plants will become puny. The following year, they'll begin to disappear. Then you can whack for a month and then cover their spots with a thick mulch. Except, of course, for the clumps you sculpt into really cool designs. Well, that sure was some timely advice about the highs and lows of hostas now, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read the details at your leisure or leisure, because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to harass my hosta if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. You'll find all of that contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast at that same website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show, and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. 
You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by Harold and Nancy McGrath. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. When she was small, our social media director, Amanda McGrath, replaced her teddy bear with a two-foot-tall Godzilla toy of mine that she called Goggy God. As you can see, Goggy God never lacked for Cheerios, a good book, a bottle, or a fresh diaper. Check out Amanda's other fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tiara Tavia Minnick is our associate producer of Production Association. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is Judicious Jake Boyer. Our floor manager, John DeSantis, just paid me a month's rent to acquire an empty box for a Godzilla toy from the 70s. Our harassed and harried director, Javier Diaz, screams, did you dare sell Goggy Ga? Ace cameraman Jeff Frederick says, lighten up, dude. It's just the box. Mint Inbox, Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Loose, used, and missing parts is our marketing madman, Jaunty Jim McDonald. Chief Techno Officer Andy Cummins says, if Johnny D has the box, where, oh, where is Goggy Ga? Oh, no, a giant monster has taken Zach the Takwisneski out of the house. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, sagely notes, well, there goes his value. Let's make sure we adjust his time card accordingly. Oh, and I'm still not your executive producer. I'm the emperor of empty boxes, Mike McGrath. I got Superman, I got Batman, I got Spider-Man, I got the Thing versus the Hulk. I got Betty Boop, I even got Mighty Mouse. And I got the in-box original alien toy that was so scary, it had to be recalled. I never understood why it had to be recalled. As I said at the premiere, when everybody else was hiding under their seats, what's the matter? He's just hungry. Yeah, it might have been the mushrooms. I may or may not pop out of somebody's chest between now and then, but if I can manage to skittle past Sigourney Weaver, I'll see you again next week. Hey, hey, get that cat out of here. Get it out. Hey, boy. Hey, boy. Where's the ball? Where's the ball? <gasps> Ready? Go get it, boy. That's a good boy. Drop it. Drop it. Good boy. Good boy. Loyal partners. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. What tantalizing topic will we attack next week? Will there be a guest? Lots of your fabulous phone calls? Will we explain why a woman seems to be screaming at the end of our credits? I'm Mike McGrath, and we'll all find out together on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden.